Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the cyber complexity crisis that Zero Trust may help fix. We kept on adding layer upon layer upon layer of stuff, and that made it increasingly complex for our IT and cyber operators to maintain this grandiose and bloated infrastructure. A preview of the next budget just as the current one finally takes effect. I actually wonder how much of a placeholder the 23 budget, the budget we don't even know about how much that becomes because that budget is not really going to reflect the current reality of, uh, of the war in Europe. And OPM hits the gas pedal on using its TMF money. I made sure my team didn't wait until we had the money available. So we've already done our market research. We have uh, contracts and procurements are ready to go. It's Wednesday, March 16th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Bill LaPlante will take his next step to becoming the Defense Department's acquisition leader next week. The Senate Armed Services Committee's confirmation hearing for LaPlante is scheduled now for next Tuesday. The committee will consider the nomination of Eric Raven to be Navy Undersecretary at the same hearing. Nine senior federal leaders will be priority area leads for the three pillars of the president's management agenda. Deputy Director for Management Jason Miller writes the nine leaders will be the, quote, key executives responsible for driving forward these three priorities across the federal government. The list includes OPM Director Kieran Ahuja and GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan. You can read the entire list of officials on that list and more on these stories and others in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. CyberScoop's Zero Trust Summit features public and private sector leaders talking about solutions for federal agencies that are implementing Zero Trust technology and strategy. The Zero Trust Summit happening April 6th at the Conrad in Washington, D.C. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency will revise its Zero Trust Maturity Model. It's creating an intersection with the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program. Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, U.S. Air Force, retired as director of the CERT Division at Carnegie Mellon University's Software Engineering Institute. He's former Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Greg, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I look forward to talking about that intersection but first, I note in something that you wrote recently, the title Two Hills Law. What is Two Hills Law and how might it apply to what's going on at CISA now? Welcome, Greg. Well, thanks very much, uh, Francis. And several years ago, back uh, at the turn of the century, I was running the Air Force's IT and cyber budgeting process, uh, just a small $22 billion portfolio. And as we were trying to make the business case as to why we needed to recapitalize and how we should make decisions, uh, well, we came up with Two Hills Law, kind of a corollary to Moore's Law, which says that you know the amount of processing power on a chip is going to double every uh, 18 months or so. And, and in essence, uh, we did the math and said that with the lifespan of uh, computer and software uh, technology, it was troubling, uh, you know, basically it would, uh, you needed a new upgrade every three years or so. And if the lifespan of a human being, according to Health and Human Services, is about 77 years, let's take a rounding error and say that one human year equals 25 computer years. And it kind of stuck. And uh, 
uh, it was called Two Hills Law because I came up with that construct. But if you think about recapitalizing your assets, your hardware, your software, and your wetware, the people skills, you need to uh, recognize that after about three years, it's time to recapitalize. And uh, that's, I think, a good rule of thumb. Uh, and many folks believe so as well in taking a look at how you should recapitalize your assets. How does that apply then what is the implication of that then for the intersection of zero trust and CDM as CISA is, is examining it today? Does it apply to the policies, whatever the policies are that they create, or does it apply to the way that the agencies implement them and what they have to own or do to implement that policy? Or is it some combination of both or did I miss the boat altogether? I, I think as you take a look at the CDM program, which Despite some of the uh, potholes that it has hit along the way, it's been really successful in meeting its original goals with phase one be, uh, being know what's on your network. Phase two was know who's on my network. And three is uh, have a better understanding and know what's going on inside my network. Uh, but that was launched back in the 2014 timeframe. And here we are years later, it's well past time for a refresh. And CIS has done a really great job in moving forward with uh, the zero trust maturity model uh, and uh, changing the culture within the dot, uh, .gov domain, but also influencing the .mil domain to take a better look as far as what's the most effective security strategy as we look for not only today, but for tomorrow. And as we take a look at that Two Hills Law, you know, we really do need to take a continual look uh, from a strategy standpoint as to the efficacy uh, of our hardware, software, and wetware solutions to better secure our mission operations. And uh, I think we're at a really good inflection point where we have the pivot to the zero trust security strategy, which is what I've been advocating, as you know, for several years. But also, and as we take a look at our CDM program and being able to answer those three questions that I posed with the different phases, uh, in a zero trust environment, we need to be able to answer those questions uh, with a great deal of assuredness as well as trustworthiness. You wrote uh, in this note that you sent me, simplicity is the arch nemesis of our adversaries. Complexity is turning out to be the bane of security. That's counterintuitive, Greg. What's the evidence that that's the case? And how do we leverage simplicity to get more of that rather than less of it? Well, I think uh, let me decompose that. First of all, the evidence uh, behind that is based upon the incident response data that uh, my organization has been collecting as the CERT Coordination Center, uh, not only for the you know the national CERT uh, in support of the national CERT here in the United States, uh, operated by. Uh, the folks at DHS, but in coordination with all the other sorts around the world. And a good 90%, I would argue that the, the number is probably uh, well above 95% of all incidents are uh, attributed to not nation state actors and criminal groups, but rather the confused, the confounded, the overwhelmed and overtasked workforce 
that are dealing with products and capabilities that are requiring them to go through extensive and lengthy training programs, that instruction sets continue to confound users as well as operators themselves. And, and then further, um, you know, as we take a look at complexity resulting into uh, cyber incidents, time and time again, we find that complexity is one of the root causes of the majority of cyber incidents not only here in the United States, but around the world. One of the recommendations that you make in this note to uh, the uh, recommendation you make to CISA is regarding simplicity. I wouldn't buy anything these days that doesn't enable me to retire at least two elderly and increasingly vulnerable technologies. Given the budget realities that we live in with the cycles that agencies have to undertake, I imagine some of these systems get elderly just as a result of the budget cycle. Are we talking about that or are we talking about the legacy stuff that agencies have been sitting on for years and decades? I think it's a little bit of both, uh, Francis. You know, as you take a look at it, often we, um, uh, under the traditional security models that we've been exercising since uh, Sun Tzu was a corporal, we kept on adding layer upon layer upon layer of stuff. And that made it increasingly complex for our IT and cyber operators to maintain this grandiose and bloated infrastructure. It's kind of like going to Denny's and getting a Grand Slam breakfast every day and then go for lunch to McDonald's and eating a Big Mac and expecting that you're not gonna get cholesterol building up in your arteries. We've, we've in, uh, in, We've been putting more and more on the back and shoulders of our wetware, our humans, and uh, we've not necessarily gotten the best return that we, uh, we possibly could. We need to be more effective, efficient, and secure. And instead of adding more and more layers of complexity that's confounding our own already short cyber workforce, we need to streamline and invest in things that are going to be more effective and more efficient, costing less in terms of money and people, and ultimately deliver results that are more secure. There's a lot more here. I wish we had time to talk about it all. It's great to have you on the program, my friend. Thanks very much. Hey, thanks very much, Francis. You can read more of what Greg's written in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast on Wednesday's show, The Cloud Journey at the Internal Revenue Service. The Deputy Chief Information Officer for IT Operations at the IRS, Kashit Pandya, is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop Podcast. That show debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The fiscal year 2022 defense budget is in place now, and it's setting a marker for fiscal 2023. Roman Schweizer's managing director for aerospace and defense in the Washington Research Group for Cowan. Roman, thanks for coming on the program. Uh, I note in your list where big ads went in the fiscal 2022 analysis, a lot of those for big weapon systems. What's jumped out at you as far as what the department will actually get for the rest of this fiscal year? Welcome. Uh, well, Francis, thanks. It's, it's uh, great to be with you. Um, so, so look, I think one thing not to kind of lose sight of uh, is uh, the request uh, overall top line is up 6% uh, year over year. Uh, and, and I think it's important for folks to note that, that that was largely baked in before Ukraine took place. That was, that was a political deal. The parameters were set. Uh, and so that was going to happen uh, without a major land war in Europe. 
Uh, and then within that top line, uh, based on Congress's math, doesn't necessarily line up to my math, but I'll take them at their word for it. Uh, investment spending, hardware spending is up uh, 8.4%. So uh, better than the top line. So to go to those big programs, uh, as well as uh, research and de uh, development spending was up uh, as well. Um, you just talked about some of the big programs. Um, I, I think it's you know notable that uh, you know sort of I, I phrase it as you know everybody got what they needed. Uh, most of the big asks that the corporations wanted, you know, Boeing got some Super Hornets uh, or uh, added to extend the product line there. D22 rate uh, was increased. I think you know notably shipbuilding is always uh, obviously a, a, a congressional favorite. Uh, you know, given the geographic dispersion, California, Mississippi, Virginia. Uh, Connecticut, Maine. Um, so, you know, significant amount of funding there. And, and you know, the Navy will continue to be a focus. Um, and then, of course, you know, notably for, for the first time in, in, in several years, uh, there was not an increase to the F-35 request. And, uh, and that's uh, sort of certainly notable uh, and suggests we're in a different place uh, on that program. What's the different place that you think that suggests that we're in, Roman? I think it's I think it's a, a couple of things. It's really uh, a perfect storm and, and maybe not in a good way. Um, so just one on, on a programmatic basis, um, there is the block four development program, the block four upgrade um, that's that's got some uh, development problems uh, that uh, the, uh, both the uh, the prime contractor Lockheed and the key subcontractor L3 Harris have, have acknowledged uh, that they're working through. Um, the the uh, there's been a large focus on both the uh, the aircraft and engine operations and maintenance costs, the flying hour costs. It's an expensive jet to operate, and as you get more of them fielded and flying around with the Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps, the bill, the tab for those aircraft grows. Uh, and then as well, there's just uh, whether it's supply chain or inflationary effects or just uh, you know, roll up the sleeves, hard negotiating. Um, you know, there there are several. You know, there's several production contract years worth of production that are being negotiated, uh, as well as uh, uh, you know, potentially a performance-based logistics contract. So that's that's sort of on, on that side of it. Um, just any normal program would kind of face those day-to-day -day or fact-of-life things. But I think more broadly. Um, the services themselves are going through some change, right? The, the Navy earlier in the year talked about needing fewer F-35s in its squadrons. Uh, the Marine Corps Commandant in his force redesign uh, has talked about reducing the number of F-35s. Uh, and then within, you know, when you look at the Air Force, uh, they just have an extensive shopping list of aircraft programs uh, coming in the future. Um, whether that's tankers or trainers, the B-21, uh, AWACS replacement possibly, um, the, the F-15EX. So there, there's a lot of claimants, there's a lot of uh, uh, appetite for those programs in the budget. And, and this could also be you know, reflective of some trade-offs with F-35. As we look at, you know, and again, as the, as the department was shifting to China, uh, maybe long range aircraft were at a, more, at, a, at a bigger premium, but now we're kind of going to be pivoting back to maybe a more European focus for planning purposes over the next couple of years. So a lot of uh, change going on. Do you see anything in the FY22 budget or is it possible to see something in the 22 budget that gives you a preview 
of what 23 could look like because we're already supposed to have that request from the White House. That's late, understandably, given the timeline that we're on. But I I wonder because it's time to start thinking about that stuff now, I guess. Right. Uh, And and so it's actually no. I I, I mean, I I hate to to not be able to give you a good answer, but, um, you know, we didn't in in the 22 budget. It was only that budget year. We didn't have a fit up a five year plan uh, that that normally comes along with that. Uh, and, And so I think, you know, in a lot of ways, 22 was sort of a placeholder and we were expecting to see some changes in 23 and then maybe some surprises. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and Congress is really, you know, going with what it knows, going with the mature production programs that, that it will typically support. I'm really curious. I mean, I actually wonder how much of a placeholder the 23 budget, the budget we don't even know about how much that becomes, because that budget is not really going to reflect the current reality of, uh, of the war in Europe, right? And so what does that mean for uh, ground, you know, ground combat programs, U.S. footprint in Europe, uh, the role of air defense and anti-tank and, you know, sort of lessons learned from that and, and having to really, you know, DOD uses the, you know, uh, a, a, a full domain force or, you know, being able to fight big wars and small wars and everything in between, um, how that defense strategy and, uh, and really the investment strategy, the hardware development strategy is now going to change. We, we may actually wait until 24 to see, you know, have to wait until the next budget beyond this to really get a sense of what the you know, major tectonic shifts are. The other challenge I imagine that we may see in 23, but it will be a last minute pivot because it's something the department's only been able to think about and plan for within the last couple of months is the impact of inflation on all of these things. Right, Roman? Exactly. And, and, and I think, you know, that's that's one of the things that, um, you know, obviously uh, a lot of folks are interested in some reporting over the last few weeks that the that at least the Biden administration is considering uh, a budget for 23 that's up four percent year over year. Uh, and that that, you know, initially that that was a two percent annual growth, you know, sort of long term growth rate. So maybe you get an extra two percent to deal with inflation. Obviously, inflation is much higher than that. Uh, you're you're going to have pay increase, federal pay increases, whether that's uh, troops or civilians. You're going to have to cover that. You're going to have to cover fuel cost increases. Um, that's that's real cost supply chain uh, potential fallout from disruption with uh, uh, you know Russian Russia supplied materials. Um, I, I really think as we head into the 23 budget, and even if you look with what Congress did pre Ukraine. You think that that pre-Ukraine budget was up six percent, you know, sort of a plus two, and then they added four percent. You know, the 23 budget could be, you know, high single digits, you know, maybe even north of the eight percent range. Uh, And then that's, you know, sort of before we get into midterms and talk about the, you know, political balance of power of future budgets after that. So, Roman, always great insight on these budget matters and numbers. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. You're welcome, Francis. Happy to do it. Great to be with you. You can read more about the fiscal 22 and 23 budgets in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Office of Personnel Management will use the nearly $10 million it got from the Technology Modernization Fund on a zero trust effort. That effort will integrate with service management and cloud migration. Guy Cavallo is the chief information officer at OPM at FedScoop's IT Mod Talks. 
He tells my colleague Dave Nitschapier he's setting up five teams to drive his cloud strategy. Everyone starts with an architecture engineering team. Everyone knows you have to develop your cloud architecture. But if you stop there, you're missing the boat. And again, that's the team that's going to figure out your cloud environment, how you connect to it, your security controls. The other things that we need are some of them are more soft skills. one, one that I find most agencies struggle with is a cloud operations team. If you try to run your cloud with the same tools and the same approaches for backup and patching that you're doing on-premise, what I've told all three agencies is blow up your processes and change everything for the cloud. So having a separate team focus on that is important. I uh, also found that you need to have a service management team, a team that works out your governance model. How are you going to charge for the cloud if you're going to do a chargeback? How are you going to pay for the cloud? How do you control the cost? Uh, another one is a service automation team. How can you automate your, your continuous integration, continuous development pipeline and get out of the legacy practices of building building in, in a um, a test environment, then moving it to a a, 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 a a testing environment, building in a development environment, excuse me, moving it to test and moving it to production. Again, in the cloud, you don't need to do that. And finally, another team, the last team is a migration team that looks at, for what we have on premise, how do we move it to the cloud? The biggest lesson I can offer to everybody out of that is you'll notice I did not have a separate security team. Each of those teams, needs to have the security uh, operations represented on them because they impact how do you operate the cloud? How do you architect it? How do you move things? And I said, it seems to work. I fine-tuned that model, but in each of the three agencies, it was those five teams with a small group of leaders doing it. And in 90 days, we turned the cloud on. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I I like this point that uh, you only need a a few cloud professionals to really pull this off. What do you look for in those people as you're you're setting things up? Um, Again, even with all the testing and training programs there, uh, because it's been 16 years, what I look for is somebody that's already done it at least once. And uh, whether that's someone on the staff or whether I bring that in uh, at at, uh, TSA, I brought in 18F to help us with that. At, uh, at SBA, I brought in a, a cloud partner who already had that experience. And then uh, at, at, at uh, OPM, uh, I had some of my SBA staff join me, so they already had the experience of doing this. So you, you, you can't do this just by taking a test and, and reading the book. It's good to have somebody with uh, practical knowledge. And then the, the beauty of that, Dave, is once you have that leadership in place, the cross-training and the cross-knowledge growth is tremendous um, because then the the people who only have legacy experience now have somebody that they can go talk to and say, okay, does this really work? And 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 see what's different between the cloud environment and their on-premise world. Yeah. Now, you also pointed out that uh, you don't have a separate cybersecurity team. Why is it so important to embed cyber into every aspect of this process? If you wait to bolt it on at the end, uh, even if you hit my 90-day target, you're probably going to take a year then to get cyber to approve everything that you've decided. So it's very important to have them there uh, letting uh, the cloud professionals and the on-premise professionals on the team know that, hey, that sounds like a great idea, but 
it's in violation of this uh, guideline or if we used a different way of doing it, we could be in alignment with the executive order on cybersecurity instead of trying to change it later. So having them involved, and I know I'm saying that, you know, that's at least five, uh, five security professionals tied up for those 90 days. Uh, I think it's a critical investment. And like I said, for me, it's paid off each time. Uh, while we're on the subject of cyber, I did want to talk touch on the uh, cybersecurity executive order that came out last year. Uh, why do you think it was so important for agencies? And is OPM doing anything differently with its systems as a result of that executive order being issued? Yeah, I, I, I love the fact that the executive order came out because for for me, it 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 put a uh, quite a quite a group of different security practices in place that had been re- recommended or people were starting to do. So I really like the fact that we got it all tied together with one bow uh, around it. Uh, I would say everything that's in the order, it didn't cause me to change anything that we were already doing. Uh, In fact, it helped uh, provide leverage for me to get additional resources where it would have taken us longer to implement things. Uh, A lot of people know that, that I applied for TMF funding for Zero Trust and we were one of the agencies that got it. Um, we were going to do zero trust even without that money. It just would have taken me longer because, you know, the budget cycle in government, uh, I inherited a budget when I got to OPM that had been decided two years earlier without zero trust. So it would have taken us longer. Uh, but I think for all the agencies, it gives us a very good checklist to see where we stand and what do we need to, uh, to change to, to get there. Now, I, I actually covered the, that TMF funding being issued, and I know that they see OPM as potential to implement zero trust as, as a potential to teach other agencies best practices. Can you give us any insights into, into how you plan to use that money and, and what you hope to learn from it? Oh, sure. We, uh, you know, we were approved back in the fall, and it's taken a while to get the money, so I, I made sure my team didn't wait until we had the money available. So we've already done our market research. We have uh, contracts and procurements are ready to go. Uh, we're gonna use the money to pay for several things. One is, is to buy the Zero Trust uh, technology, uh, and but also to buy the appropriate consulting and support to help us uh, implement it. And that's not just for, let's say we, we go ahead with product X. We're not just looking at hiring specialists in implementing product X, but we're looking at the integration into some of those teams I discussed earlier. How do we roll this in into our migrations, into our service management uh, and our governance and, and, and costing model? Um, I, you know, to, me, to me, we did this at SBA and I was really uh, surprised at the capabilities of, of taking all of the logs of our information systems and putting them in the cloud and then using artificial intelligence to, uh, to get a better security posture. So I, I'm really glad that things like that are built into the uh, Zero Trust Initiative so that agencies can get that type of, of, of feedback. We are all under you know, robotic uh, artificially intelligent, artificial intelligence-based attacks right now, and if we try to counter those with humans looking at security monitors, we will lose every time. We're, we have to up our game and and fight those same resources with those same capabilities. So, getting your cyber 
to the point where you can you're not limited by on-premise hardware on how many logs you can collect, but you're doing it in the cloud and using AI. I think all the federal government's going to benefit from that. Yeah. Shifting focus to another executive order, the the customer experience executive order dropped in November. I know that was welcomed by a lot of agencies. I'm curious what your approach to CX is, and are there any projects underway at OPM that really sort of embody the spirit of that that effort? Oh, sure. Yeah, that, that's another great executive order. Uh, I mean, we we're living in the you know the day of Amazon and Uber Eats and people being on their on their phone, being able to basically do anything, uh, make retirement uh, procurements, uh, uh, you know, investments, uh, buy food, have it delivered. And yet when they work with the federal government, we still have mainframe based uh, green screens that they have to enter the same information that they've already entered uh, in multiple agencies over and over again. So improving the customer experience, I think for the federal government is probably our most important uh, initiative. Uh, luckily, Claire, our, our, our federal CIO had already conducted a customer experience uh, journey map for, for us that I inherited from her. Um, because when you think about it, uh, a federal employee touches OPM many times throughout their career, from applying for their first job, to getting that job, to getting promotions, to annually changing their health insurance, to possibly getting married or moving to a different agency, and eventually retiring. Uh, in the past, OPM has treated all of those as separate silos of interactions. What, what Claire laid out for us and that we're working to implement now is let's make that cradle to, to grave federal journey a much better experience. So uh, I, I've, I've implemented a digital services team, which we're still hiring for that. I've got the combination of legacy technology that I can't change overnight. So what can I do to change the user experience in front of it? So we're probably gonna be doing quite a few changes to what the user sees while we're still working on modernizing the back end. But again, across government, I think it's something critical. Uh, we're big users of login.gov you know, as uh, identity management, which again, from a citizen perspective, if they only have to give their data to one agency and others are able to reuse that account, uh, we're just improving everything across the board. Uh, and last thing I want to point out, Dave, it's, it's not just the information systems that we can improve with, uh, with a better customer experience. Uh, just in the last fall, I replaced a aging on-premise uh, call center for our retirees uh, with a cloud-based call center. And uh, I don't have the downtime. I don't have retirees on hold that now get cut off after waiting and have to dial back in 15, 20 times. So again, across the board, we can make that customer experience for a citizen uh, much better. And like I said, all we have to do is, is compare ourselves to the private sector. And until we're there, we, we still have more work to do. Guy Cavallo, the CIO at OPM at FedScoop's IT Mod Talks with my colleague Dave Nichapier. You can find a link to watch the video of Guy's remarks in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. 
The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Tomorrow, you'll learn more about the cloud journey at the IRS. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.